Well, I think that's all the announcements we have. If you guys want to please stand, we are now going to read Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it today and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Melhon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Mahon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is like who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
So when I started this series, I said that Ruth was the greatest short story, and I believe that to be true. I also said it was one of the greatest love stories of all time. That's true, but I purposely said one of the greatest because it is not the greatest. It's actually just a chapter of the greatest love story ever told. That story has been told, is still being told. Today we end the story in the final chapter of Ruth. But everything that happened in the lives of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz is one thread in the great tapestry of the story God is telling of his love for a people he has called his own. Every time you open up your Bible, you read a chapter of this love story. In October, when we had nine people who were baptized, they gave you part of their chapter of this great, fantastic, ever-expanding love story. And C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle really says it quite well. Last Battle is the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the one many people know. This is the last book in there. And this is the last bit of that book. And from this end, and from this and from this, the end of all stories, and we can, most cert- we can most truly say they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in the world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover of the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This is better than happily ever after. It is the purest and greatest love story. The philosopher Plato, in his book, The Republic, talked about a love that was greater than romantic love, than eros love. And today we call that platonic love. So you'd say, that's my platonic friend. There's nothing between us. And he, he was on to something, but he didn't go deep enough. It's something so much, he believed that there was something greater and something purer than romantic love. He had the word agape in his language in the Koine Greek. Agape is that great word that we see so much in the New Testament. But if you were somebody in antiquity reading parts of the New Testament, you're like, you don't use that word for this. You don't use that word to say you agape somebody else. This is reserved not even for the gods. This is reserved for concepts. You agape justice. You agape peace. But the Lord tells us to agape one another, that he agapes us. And even this word does not come close to going to the very depths of the love that God has for us. We are all caught up in the greatest love story that there has ever been. Even that word agape is a poor explanation for God's love. What explanation can there be for God's love? Why does he love you? There is no explanation. He does not love you because you are good. He does not love you because you do all the Christian stuff. He does not love you because you have the right theology. He does not love you because you speak in tongues and can understand all spiritual things. He loves you because he loves you. So we come to the question that I posed at the very start of this series in, in Ruth, that what the book of Ruth explains. How does a foreign woman of an enemy nation of a people conceived in one of the vilest types of sin imaginable become a link in the chain of the greatest king of all of Israel? Or the deeper question, how does an enemy of Israel fit into the family of Messiah? Or better yet, this question, who is going to redeem me? What is a greater love story than Ruth and Boaz? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, uh, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is a stirring story about a person of a nation who is an enemy of Israel becoming part of the family of Israel. But you and I, by nature, were children of wrath. But God has welcomed us into his family. The story of Ruth is about love. It's about love between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law, about a man and a woman. But this is just the vehicle of the larger story of a God who takes those who are his enemy by nature and makes them into family. The concept that we find in the book of Ruth that we see many times, I've mentioned before, is that of the kinsman redeemer. And I've very much on purposely not gone a deep dive into the kingdom and redeemer because I wanted to do that for the last chapter, chapter four here. Um, I have a graph on there about the kinsman redeemer I'd like for us to reference. It's like, oh boy, this is gonna be exciting. There's graphs, but it'll help. Uh, Believe me, it'll help. Um, There are four duties of the kinsman redeemer we see in the Old Testament. And Christ is this, but more. Christ is so much more than this. Let me go through them here. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 through 10. I'm just going to read a couple of verses because I'm going to read the rest of it a little bit later. If, brother dwells, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not, shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go, shall go in her and take her as his wife and perform the duties of the husband's brother to her. This was about continuing the inheritance that the inheritance wouldn't be lost for the family, but it would be still there with an heir that is then sired by the um, deceased brother's uh, brother. Once again, if there was no other, if there was no children from that first marriage. Now, of course, Christ gives us a greater inheritance than a physical inheritance. In fact, Christ marries us as part of, that's the metaphor that's used most in the New Testament is that of marriage, that we are a Christ bride and that we are then married and we have this inheritance then through Christ. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 48. Then after he, has, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him. So this has to do with when people go, fall on hard times. They were able to sell themselves into slavery in order, in order to make it through those hard times. Now, it was a brother's responsibility to purchase their brother out of slavery. Go back to Jesus' parable about we say the prodigal son, but it's two lost sons. When I was preaching on this, I say there is a character missing. It's a true older brother because a true older brother, if his younger brother was an idiot, got himself into trouble, possibly selling himself into slavery. He was to seek and to save that brother who was lost. Jesus Christ says he came to seek and to save that which is lost. He then would pay the ransom for that brother and redeem that brother out of slavery. What's going to be, uh, I think, is kind of what, what is really neat to associate with this is something in American history is that when uh, England was colonizing America, it wasn't as easy sell as we sometimes read in the uh, history books. You're basically flipping a coin to see whether you'd live or die on the trip there. 
Um, so it wasn't so easy to get so many people to colonize the new country. So what they would do is that people would get in trouble, um, steal something, kill somebody, whatever. And it was, you can go to the gallows or you can go to America. And you'll go to America as an indentured servant. That was what slavery was like in the Bible times, by the way. It was like an indentured servant. You had a period of years. It wasn't generational. It wasn't for life. But you'd have a period of years, and you weren't your own. You belonged to somebody else unless you were purchased out of slavery by a redeemer. Um, Wayne Furstenell cued me in this movie called um, Unconquered with Gary Gary Cooper. Um, And I was really surprised because this is actually in there. This gal is convicted of murdering a dude. So she has 13 years of slavery in America. And then Gary Cooper, he's like the man's man. He purchases purchases her out of slavery. They end up getting married later on. So there's a bit of Ruth and Boaz in there too. Um, Really cool movie. It's it's an older movie if you like older movies. Um, But that was one of the responsibilities of a kinsman redeemer was to redeem their brother out of slavery. Of course, you don't need to, you don't need to me to tell you that Christ purchased us out of the slavery of our own sinful nature. That we were like the younger brother living riotously in a foreign country And when he was going to go back, he says to himself, "Um, none of my father's servants eat this bad. By the way, the word servant is actually doulos, meaning slaves. None of my father's slaves eat this bad. I'll go to my father, say, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your doulos, slaves. With no older brother to redeem him, the father cancels the debt. But we have an older brother who has redeemed us. Numbers 20, um, 35, 19. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. It was the kinsman redeemer's job. It was his responsibility that if his relative was unjustly killed, unjustly killed, they then had the responsibility to avenge the blood of that relative. Now, We see people taking this out of context even in the scripture when it comes to a guy named Joab. Joab's younger brother was a hothead and was going after um, another guy named Abner. Abner was telling him, get away from me. I don't want to hurt you or Joab's going to be upset with me. And the guy literally runs at him so hard that when Abner has the blunt end of his spear, he impales himself on it. And then Joab figures, well, I've got every right to, and he deceives him. It's really, it's a huge mess. But you know something? We don't have that responsibility anymore because Christ is our avenger. Romans 12, 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Because he actually has the first right of redemption, period, because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. When someone sins against you, they have sinned against the Lord primarily. When David was giving his great psalm about, of repentance, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. He was not trying to get out of responsibility, but he was saying, against the greatest authority have I sinned, not just against Uriah and Bathsheba, but against the Lord himself have I sinned. Let's go down to the last one right here. Leviticus 25, 25. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of, the, part of his property, then... His nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what the brother has sold. It is this law that chapter 4 will address, keeping the land within the family slash tribe, which was their inheritance from the Lord. Our inheritance is a spiritual or a spiritual inheritance. We're going over Hebrews um, in our morning Sunday school, and I love that. I love Hebrews. Every like verse of Hebrews blows my mind. 
First time I read Hebrews, I got to um, Hebrews chapter 11. I got to the point about Abraham, who was the man of faith, and that he was looking for a country whose, whose author and builder was the Lord. And I stopped in my tracks, and I was like, I understand the Old Testament now. I never did before. In the Old Testament, it seems like, you know, you have this track of land that people are fighting over. No, that's not what it's about at all. It's about a man who leaves the comfortable to go into the uncomfortable because he believes that there's something greater than this earth, greater than a plot of land. He was looking for a city whose author and builder was the Lord. I struggle with what to call today's sermon. When you look at chapter 4, you, you, or of all of Ruth, you understand the basic theological meaning, which is Christ is our kinsman redeemer, and that's absolutely true. But what is the application for us? What is the takeaway? Well, it's simply this, that when th- even things start off bad, <coughs> or however that works, our life in the Lord is not a straight line. It often isn't. Many people lose a lot of hope because of that. They have their plans that they believe that God has given them, but it's really their own. And when things don't work out that way, they think that God has abandoned them. And that's what Naomi felt like, right? She comes back, call me Mara. I'm not sweet anymore. I'm bitter. Because God, she blames the Lord, actually. She says that God had emptied her out. It's a good thing we have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. So oftentimes we have our plan for our life and it doesn't go the way we think it should go and we think that God has abandoned. No, he hasn't abandoned us. He just hasn't shown us every curve and twist in the road. I was going to call the, uh, today's sermon, um, I was going to call it God Bless the Broken Road, but I figured too many sermon titles with song titles is going to be too much. Um, I was going to call it because that because um, me and my wife, we've been married for 13 years, going on 14 years. And um, during our wedding, I had my sister sing that song, and I first heard it from Sela, not from that country band that I can't remember right now. Um, and uh, Becca asked me last week, why did you have your sisters? So we've been married 13 years. Why do you have your sisters sing the song, God Bless the Broken Road? And the reason why she was asking is that, uh, for those of you who don't know, me and Becca, we've only ever dated each other. Um, we, we were virgins when we, when we got married, um, we didn't have all this relational turmoil. And that's what a lot of people, when they have that song played at their wedding, it's all the turmoil, then eventually they're with that person. So Becca was asking me that because we don't have that story. I was like, well, we all have that story with the Lord though, don't we? That we have this broken road and really it's ourselves who break the road, who have all these things and we don't see the end from the beginning like him. So we have to trust him. I like the analogy better of a miscovered road because I like to go running when it's misty out, even though that's crazy dangerous. And uh, because you don't know what's going to happen. You only know what's right in front of you. So all you know is the next step. That's all that Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz know is what is the next right step to be taken? And that a trust, it's a trust in the promises of God. It's a trust in the certainty of who the Lord is. It is faith faith in the dark, faith on the miscovered road, the broken road that leads us to the Lord and continues to lead us to the road. Um, Instead, I use the common fairy tale ending, but it's much more than that because it's real. It speaks of something real that goes on past the story of Ruth and Boaz. It is better than happily ever after. They lived happily after, of course, but greater than that, the Messiah who came from them, enables us all to live happily ever after. So for this chapter, I've broken it up into three sections of redemption, two, restoration, three, resurrection. Redemption, verses 1 through 12. Um, the type, 
the kind of um, redemption we are talking about in Ruth is one of property and family. For redemption is much greater concept than that. The Hebrew word for redemption that you find in our scripture today is Gael. It is very much tied to the idea of a family redeemer. To summarize it all up, it's making sure what is taken from the family is returned to the family. The sale of property, the sale of an individual, the loss of a person without an heir, all of these things are to be returned to the family because they were the inheritance of God to the family. They were not earned by the family, but given to the family by God, and it cannot be taken away. When we read about in Revelation, is God's promise in that area being fulfilled. People want to complain all the time about Israel right now. Should they go back to their pre-1960s borders? I remember hearing that one time. It's like, well, why doesn't America go back to our 1888 um, uh, borders too? We can give up California and Texas and all that as well. Um, but anyway, people want to say, it's like, but you know something? It's not given to them by the UN. It's not given to them by conquest. It is given to them by the Lord. In Revelation, we see God making, making, uh, making good on that promise. The Redeemer is somebody who makes sure that the, that, that goes back to the family. Redemption is, is, is also more basic than that. We see this in the New Testament, even in our own vernacular about redemption. It's redemption is something that has been paid for that will now be taken possession of. You can redeem this coupon at any of our participating stores. President Trump is known for a lot of things, but one thing he's known for is his best-selling book, The Art of the Deal. Boaz, in verses 1 through 8, he must have read the art of the deal because you see the cunning of Boaz in here. It retells how Boaz explains the situation to his relative and convinces him um, it's not in his best interest um, to take this opportunity. In verse 1, now Boaz had come up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken to came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So let me explain kind of how this works and cities work back then. We think of a gate. We kind of think of the medieval gate, right, with the drawbridge. Gates of the city were more than that. They were, a bit, they were a place of doing business as well. They had little alcove and little areas you could get together. So he's not just basically sitting around. He's like, hey, come over here. Hey, come over here. This was a place where business was done. He's making sure that this is official. This is the time, not of the kings, but of the judges. So the most official you can make things is by having witnesses, especially the elders of the city here. He wants to make sure there's no going back on this deal. There's a lot of wisdom in that. A lot of people, it's like, you know, you, know, you, you used to be able to trust somebody's word. Well, that's nice and all, but you should also make sure that they can't go back on it either. Boaz wants to make sure that this is as official as it gets. In verses 3 and 4, um, Boaz forces the question, are you or are you not going to redeem Naomi and Ruth? You have a, he has had a lot of time to consider Naomi can only live so long having her daughter-in-law glean in the fields. So she has to sell the property and she has to sell it to a kinsman redeemer. When you had a plot of land as a family, a part of a tribe in Israel, you, got a, you, got, you had two scrolls, two deeds to the property. One was yours and one was in the city. The one in the city was sealed with a seal. And the only person who could open up that seal was the person who owns the property of land. Only people who could do that as well as those who, were, had, who had the authority to be a kinsman redeemer. So there was only, and this is, going to, this is going to come up later too. 
So he wants to force this, he wants to force this question here. Say what you mean. In verse 5 and 6, it's all about the cost. Verse 5, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from Naomi, right before this, the, the near redeemer, who's never named, says, I will redeem it. And if you're reading this for like the first time, you're like, what? Stop telling the story wrong, Grandpa. <laughs> what do you mean you're going to redeem it? I know that they get together. So you're like, so Boaz is like, I forgot to mention something here. You might be interested to know. You see, with the land comes somebody else. Verse 5, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite. You know, this is the only time Boaz calls her a Moabite. Because in his heart, she wasn't a Moabite. But he wanted to make sure, and he's putting putting the nails in right now. Um, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. It It's very probable he had a wife of his own, and it might have been hard to explain to her, like, so you're going to have some company. And more than that, I have a duty to make sure that she has a child and that person is an heir. And it's even more than that. It is that when things get divvied up amongst his heirs, he needs to make sure that Malin's property goes to that heir, not his own sons. It's not his land so much as he's entrusted to it. It's a much better proposition for a guy who's single and doesn't have kids like Boaz, as it is for him. And uh, so he's like, forget that. You take, you take redemption of that if you don't mind. And uh, so Boaz reminds the guy of Ruth. You know, what about her? We can assume that this guy was married and had kids of his own and didn't want the trouble of having to figure out um, this goes to Billy, this goes to Jimmy, and this parcel of land goes to whoever I have with Ruth. This is, uh, this, once again, this is the moment we hold our breath. Verses 7 and 8 is, seems like a bit of trivia that doesn't really make much sense. I'm just going to read that, and I'm going to tell you about why they put this in the Scripture. A lot of times, they don't go over the nuts and bolts of the different things that are going on here. Verse 7, Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of um, attesting to in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I brought this land, um, bought, bought from the hand of Naomi. So that's kind of a, it seems kind of weird where he takes off his shoe and uh, Boaz gets it. I don't know if Boaz got to keep his shoe. I don't think he got to keep his shoe, but I like to think maybe he got to keep his shoe and the guy had to limp the whole way home. And if I was Boaz, I'd put that up like above the mantle and everything. And that's when I stole that dude's shoe. This actually, this has some basis in the law of Moses. The part I didn't read to you in Deuteronomy um, chapter 25. We're going to start with verse 7. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetrate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duties of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, 
Then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and, put, and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she, shall answer, and she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of, the, name of his house shall be called uh, in Israel, the house of him who has his sandal pulled off. Obviously, they did not go to the letter of this. It was something that was something probably they did for a while, but after a while, they're like, how about we skip the hawking the loogie in his face part? And we just figure out another way around this. Good for him, right? I mean, uh, that, that works out well. And there's somebody else who wants to redeem Ruth, and, uh, and he doesn't have to be called, you know, Shoeless McGee. So I just realized now, like, when I go through the scripture, maybe I should call him Shoeless McGee instead of the nearer redeemer. Um, so he, he loses his shoe here. And uh, the, the, the main takeaway from here is that they are now redeemed. Naomi and Ruth are now redeemed. We have that whole bated breath, what's going to happen here? You know, there's other times in the scripture where you get to this point. In fact, with Judah, he has, a, he has two sons and both of them die. And the second one and the third one, he holds back. Didn't always go so well, didn't always go so easy. In fact, his second son thought he would cheat the wife out of all of these things and God killed him for it. And but now they've been redeemed. In, verse, uh, in verses 9 through 12, uh, Boaz enacts the redemption. He doesn't, he doesn't wait. He does it right in the presence of those witnesses, just like the way that Naomi told Ruth, Hold on, he's going to figure this out this day. Naomi, I like Naomi. She is definitely a wise woman, right? She can read between the lines. He really likes you, and he's going to make sure this happens. Verses 9 through 12, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are my witnesses this day that I have bought, brought, bought from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Bemelech and all that belongs to Shalin and Malan. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought her to be my wife to perpetrate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from the brothers from the gate of his native place. You are my witnesses this day. The Lord has bought us as well to be in his inheritance with the blood of his son. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. What they mean by that is that they birthed, or their servants as well, the 12 tribes of Israel, Israel's 12 sons, Jacob, who would be called Israel's 12 sons. They do not want the kind of strife. It's just a, it's a blessing without the curse. Who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily and if you're wondering, is that the same word that's been used twice before in, in the book of Ruth? You are right. It is the same one that's in Proverbs 31. It is the same way where David talks about his mighty men and that, and that uh, Gideon is called a mighty man of valor. May you act worthily in Ephrath and, to, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. What an amazing scene. He gets all these people together and he presses this guy, do you want to marry her? And the guy's like, nope. He's like, I do. Let's make it official right now. It's kind of like, have you ever been at a wedding and the pastor will say, if anybody has cause that these two should not be married, please say now. 
And you're like, I wonder if anybody's going to stand up. This will make this boring ceremony a little more exciting. Can you imagine somebody stands up like, yeah, me. I love the bride. I've always loved her. And he doesn't love her. And then the groom's like, you're right. I don't. (laughs) Since we've got the minister here and all the decorations, why don't you marry her? That's what's happening right here. And Boaz, once again, I mean, this is how he planned it. He's not going to wait for another day because of his great love for Ruth. He wants to make sure that day, you know, he doesn't need another track of land. He's already rich beyond, beyond his even wants. In fact, that's why he's so generous. That's why he's known as one of the generous people in, it, in Judah. That's why those people come to his fields to glean, because other people didn't, but he did. He doesn't need it, but what he does want, what he does need is Ruth. He would sell everything he owns to acquire what he truly wants. Jesus said a parable one time of a man who finds a pearl in a field and he sells everything he has to purchase the field so he can have that pearl. That is what Christ has done for you and for me. He's decided we are that, 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 that him being that pearl of great price, we sell everything we have to acquire him, but he has also done that for us. The witnesses say, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up Israel. May you act worthily in Epiraph and and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Boaz and Ruth get all those blessings without any of the headache of those people we just mentioned and heartache. But he's, getting, but he's wanting to get something godly by using godly means. That's what happens. Two, restoration. The first point was, a, was, was going over quite a bit of chapter four. First, uh, second point is only a little bit because you don't have so much of the nuts and bolts. It's really the celebration of what is happening here. It is a requiem for bitterness. A requiem is a piece of music in remembrance of somebody. It is most known for its sad and somber tones. It'd be during a funeral or during a remembrance celebration. When Naomi comes back from Moab to Bethlehem, she wants to have a requiem for Naomi. She went away full, but has come back empty. She even blames the Lord for it. Once again, I'm so glad we have such a high priest who sympathizes with our weakness that every word we say to the Lord out of hurt and pain, he doesn't hold against us. But sometimes he just holds us in those moments when we're angry and hurt. He doesn't, he doesn't visit upon Naomi for her straight-up blasphemy, but it's wait and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. We have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Naomi tells the people of her village, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Verses 13 through 15 is the requiem for Mara. We see her bitterness dies. So many people live with bitterness so long. It doesn't matter what joy comes into their life. It only tastes like bitter. It's kind of like, you know, Baskin Robbins has 31 flavors and you still choose salt. You know, sad, you know, you, you see people who hang on to bitterness so long that it doesn't matter what good thing happens in their life. They're so consumed with their bitterness. To lose their bitterness would be like giving up their own child. But you know something? We need to have a funeral for our bitterness, a funeral for these habits, hangups, and hurts. We need to have that time where it's like, ding dong, the witch is dead. Wicked witch, the witch old witch. 
and to have a house fall on our bitterness. Mara finally dies so that Naomi can live. Last year, I wrote an article for the paper called The Grass Will Be Green Again, in which I talked about times of mourning, times of suffering, to remember that the grass will be green again. I should have saved it for around this time because it's like this frozen wasteland, negative 25 degrees and stuff, but you get my meaning here. We know that winter will end, spring will come, summer will be in full bloom. We know that the morning lasts for a night, but joy comes when the sun comes up, when the sun rises. That we tell God, sometimes we tell God, call me Mara. And he says, I won't call you by that name. You're Naomi. I'm kind of a stubborn individual and people tell me that their name is something different than what their actual given name is. I call them their given name anyway. And so is the Lord. We tell him, we tell him, call me Mara, call me bitter. He says, I won't call you that. You notice that nobody calls her that in this whole book, even though she asked them to call her that, but I won't call you Mara. In, in verses 13 through 15, we see Mara die. God restores her through a son. The women have the, have the right of it. And we see an interesting parallel. God restores Naomi through a son. The parallel is that he has restored us through his son who has come through the line of Obed. Naomi is physically restored in that she has a son-in-law and then a grandson who take care of her in her old age. She is emotionally restored because of the joy of this new baby. She is spiritually restored in that the faith and encouragement of Ruth has now become sight. Verses 13 through 15. So Boaz took... Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and nourisher of your old age, for your daughter in law who loves you, who is to you more than seven sons, has given birth to him. Remember in the first sermon on this, I said, Naomi, remember he is Yahweh Rophe, the Lord your healer. He was first called that when the people of Israel came to a place, they called it the waters of Mara, of bitterness. The Lord told them, put this tree limb into the water, and he turned what is bitter into what is sweet, and they called him Yahweh Rophe, God my healer. Some of us, we have deep hurts, deep bitterness that we've held on to a long time. You know that you've held on to something when you start thinking about, really thinking about it, and it feels like you're in that moment again. I like to say that, like, you know you've forgiven somebody if you have a dream about them and you don't start beating the tar out of them? Because in a dream, there's no consequences, and it's really kind of your true feelings. I remember having that one time, waking up, and I was like choking on my own bile, and I'm like, God, I have not forgiven them at all. I told people I did. I mean, I came, I gave my little testimony, I've forgiven this person, but I didn't really forgive them. I had to have a moment where I came to the Lord, my healer, and say, turn what is bitter into what is sweet. There is a resurrection that happens. Not that Malin and Chalin and her husband come back to life, but the Lord restores what has been taken away. Verses 16 through 20. I'm going to read 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap. Do you remember Abraham and Sarah when they were given a promise of a child and they had this great idea? Oh yeah, we'll, we'll take your servant, your slave. That's what Hagar was. And we will pretend she is the wife of Abraham. And then when she conceives, this was Sarah's idea. She'll give birth to Ishmael on my lap and we'll say that this is my son. Nobody was fooled and nobody called Ishmael Sarah's son. But Naomi, they call Obed, a son has been born to Naomi. Wow. It's amazing if you, use, if you look to have something in a godly way, the godly outcome that happens. What do we say of this boy? That he is the son of Naomi? It's as though her sons have been resurrected in Obed. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. That is the one who comes from the redeemed lineage of Obed. Amen. Obed is the community's joy. I want, to, I want to take a moment and point out how the community is involved in the joy of this child. That is how I see the church when it comes to rearing children. Every child who comes here at Faith Church should have 50 aunts and 50 uncles. And really 50 brothers and sisters, but I like the terminology of aunts and uncles for this. I shared in, in uh, Sunday school this morning how that was one of the things that was just amazing when I came to the Lord. Like I came from a broken house. My mom and dad got divorced when I was like five years old. I barely knew my dad. So I didn't really have support at home. I didn't, you know, I failed. I really failed. You know, there, there was nobody to go to. And um, I'd, come to, I'd come to church and I had all these aunts and uncles all of a sudden. I had all these like mothers and fathers in the Lord who prayed for me. Who, who made sure I was doing okay when I was going through a hard time, took me aside and talked with me, was a shoulder to cry on. And I pray every church I come to that that's what we have. Sometimes like, you're worried, you know, uh, Rocky and Becca, when you do a youth thing, it's like, are, is, the, is the congregation going to care? Because a lot of them don't have kids in youth group. Why would they come to something? Everybody should be involved because that is part of the joy of church is that we are brothers and sisters and we are a family and we should be even closer. I remember one time God, God uh, led me to go on a mission trip to Suriname. And the money just didn't come in. I did all the letters out and the money didn't come in. I'm like, okay, well, that's just what it is. Um, I thought I heard from the Lord, but I must have been wrong and I need to learn through this. And then somebody from a church that I had attended like five, six years before that paid my entire way. Like, why would somebody do so? Why would somebody do such a thing? You know why? Because we're family, of course. And she knew that little bit of time that I was in that church that I was, I, was, I was as a nephew or a son to her. And if God wanted me to go on that mission trip, she was going to make sure that I went on that mission trip. The ending of this story is so much different from the beginning, and it's supposed to be. This story could have, been, could have started with Elimelech's birth and growing up, but it doesn't. Instead, the Holy Spirit starts with tragedy, then continues in more tragedy a family leaving their people, dying and coming back bitter and as strangers. And at the end, it is a family now a significant part of Israel, resurrected to the place that God had for them. When you read the beginning of Ruth, you see a family and it looks like they're broken, right? No heirs. Nobody's going to continue on this line. They're, they're going, Naomi's going to die. Ruth is going to die. And all of a sudden, the line of Abimelech, that's gone. But then we find out at the end of this chapter, they are, Obed is the grandpa 
of King David. He's also the great, 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 I don't know how many, great grandpa of Jesus Christ himself. Isn't it amazing how God will take our mess and turn it into a message? How God will take something we say, look, it's dead, and he brings it back alive? That is the resurrection that we see at the end of here is not of a person, but of a family who have now been resurrected to a place in the kingdom where there was death, now there is life. Despair has turned into joy and to hope. The most crazy thing is Ruth, the person this book is named after. She was an enemy of the people of God, now part of the family in the people of God, in the very lineage of Messiah. Well, this is just one instance of God bringing his enemies into his family. You know, another instance of this is Boaz, Boaz's own mother, who is Rahab, the prostitute. The Gentile prostitute who lived in Jericho, the enemy of God's people. She was Boaz's mother. And I imagine when he saw Ruth, he saw a lot of his mom in her. That no matter what the circumstance was, and some circumstances are out of your hands, she, she didn't want her husband to die. She didn't want her brother-in-law to die. She didn't want her father-in-law to die. But instead of wallowing in her own self-pity, she said, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Now I have to imagine Boaz is like, that sounds like mom who said to a people, to people that everybody here is so scared of you. If you will spare me and my family, I will help you. I will keep your secret. And they told her, bring, take the red, take the red piece of fabric, put it out of your, bring it out of your house. And now to this day, everybody who has the red blood of Jesus Christ on them is also saved and have been adopted and married into God's family. The ending of this is so amazing because we see it's so much more than just the story of Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi, but this is a family story, a generational story. The, um, it's, it's why the end of the book isn't even an ending, but a partial genealogy, and it starts with Perez. Perez, why, why in the world Perez? Perez did not, was not born in a great circumstance. I, I talked about that the first week, and I'm not going to use the old instead voice for it this week, um, so you guys are good. Um, but what, it, what, it ha- what had happened was, uh, once again, Judah um, gave his first son to a gal named Tamar. He died because he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Second son did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, also dies. He has a third son, and he's like, instead of obeying God, how about I hold him back until he's older? You know, about 99 or something. I don't know what his, what his plan was. In fact, he says it was an evil thing for him to do that. And uh, Tamar, Tamar dresses up like a prostitute and through a series of events has a child with Judah. That child is Perez. It doesn't matter what your story started like. See, we talk a lot about generational curses, and I'm always worried that people are going to use a generational curse as an excuse for doing bad behavior. Sometimes people do that, right? You know, Perez could have been like, hey, you know, Dad, Judah, who's also like my grandpa, I don't know how that works, but there's no incest involved. Um, he He dealt 
poorly with my mother. My mother was in deceit, but he chose righteousness instead of unrighteousness. And God extends the line all the way to Messiah through him. And we have Perez here because it doesn't matter how your life started. It matters your choices you make because, well, there's a generational curse from one generation to another, but generational blessing of those who fear the Lord to the thousands generation. And we need to stop acting like we're under a curse when God has removed the curse of the law from us in Jesus Christ. We are blessed to the thousands, to the thousand, thousands generation. We bring God our messes and he makes them into messages. Imagine what he will do with you. Worship team, you can come up at this time. So I talked about the scrolls that were used when you had a plot of land like Naomi had. You had two scrolls that were made for you. One was for you to keep. And one would be in the city in which the track of land was a part of. That one that was kept in the city was one that was under lock and key. Nobody could just take a look at it. In fact, there was a seal that was put on it. And who could open that seal? The one who could open that seal was either the owner of it or the redeemer. Boaz could open up that seal. If the seal was broken by anybody else, there's a big problem. And somebody needs to answer for it. Who is worthy to open the seal? The one who is worthy to open the seal is the one who owns the land, the one who is paid for the land, the one who is willing to redeem it. So can I read from you Revelation chapter 5? Then I saw, then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. I need a redeemer, but there's no one to redeem. I don't know if you remember my story with this Muslim gal that I was stocking shelves with, and I was telling her that I'm not afraid of death because there is one who has gone before me who has died in my place. And she asked me, who is going to die for me? Who is going to open up the scroll? Who is worthy to open up the scroll? Verse 4, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Starting to understand Ruth a little more about Boaz being open, able to open the seal, willing to open the seal, that our kinsman, redeemer, Jesus Christ, he is not only able to, he is willing to, and he has bought us with the blood of the Lamb. Are you redeemed today? Have you come to Christ? If you die today, do you know, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? This past week on one of the late night programs, somebody asked the host because they knew that he was at least a practicing Catholic, how does that intersect with, your, with, with comedy? And he tried to explain to her something about eternity. And I remember thinking, you know, some, anybody can say that. You know what she needs to hear? That there is one who has gone before, who has died in her place. And that if she would love him, accept him, he would be a kinsman redeemer to her. And that she would taste and see that the Lord is good. Are you redeemed? If you are not today, during this last song, it is your opportunity to cry out to the Lord alone for salvation. What needs to be restored in your life? 
the people of the town, the women of the town told Naomi, Obed, he will restore you in your old age. What do you need to be restored in your life? What things in your life you have told God, this is dead, it's done, it's done. He wants to restore it today. Your hope. What in your life needs to be resurrected? If you have a loved one who doesn't know the Lord today, don't give up. Don't give up. He can restore what is dead. I've been so blessed this last year. My uh, my little brother, Brent, um, came to such an amazing faith in Jesus Christ. I've been praying for him for years, years and years and years. There's sometimes he was openly hostile to the message of Jesus Christ. Sometimes he would soften. Then all of a sudden, he just can't get enough of the scripture. It's like, for so long, I was, I mean, almost, to be honest, I mean, I was kind of like, well, there's nothing more I can do. But I can bring it back and be like, God, you can resurrect this. That son or daughter who is in the faraway country living riotously. God is the one who welcomes back the prodigal. He is the elder brother who seeks him to save that which is lost in that faraway country. Believe it today. He's on it. Heard something very powerful, and I've said it before too from the from the lectern, is that God loves your children, He loves your brothers and sisters, He loves your mom and dad, He loves those people around you more than you do. And we can trust him to, we can trust those people to God's care and control. God cares more about that situation that's coming up that's keeping you awake at night more than you do. We can now rest in him because he's our Sabbath's rest. So the challenge for you today during this last song, you need to ask the question, am I truly saved? Am I truly redeemed? And if not, I trust the Holy Spirit is going to lead you to himself during this last song. Do you have a bit of hope that needs to be restored? A life that needs to be resurrected? I am believing on the Lord Jesus Christ that even where you're at or if you want to come to the altar, that that is what God is going to do in your life because he is our kinsman redeemer. And with him, we live better than happily ever after. Worship team, please lead us.